Welcome back to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. My name is Woodrow Bellamy III, and today we've got a great episode for you. We're going to be hearing from Daniel Welch of Valor Consultancy about in-flight connectivity equipage trends across different regions of the world. But first, I want to remind everyone that the 2020 Global Connected Aircraft Summit is now open for registration. We're going to be continuing to add new speakers, and the agenda is now up on the website. Check out www.gcasummit.com to see some of the latest confirmed speakers and topics for this year. And now, let's get into today's conversation. Our guest today is from Valor Consultancy. Daniel, can you first just give us your name and job title and also tell our audience a little bit about your role with Valor and how you got into your current position there? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name's Daniel Welch. Um, I'm co-founder and senior analyst uh, at Valor Consultancy, uh, one of three co-founders along with my colleagues, Craig Foster and, and Josh Flood. Um, so a little bit of uh, background about Valor. Um, so we're, we, uh, we have offices uh, in uh, the UK, which is where we're headquartered, um, and also Melbourne, Australia, which is where I'm currently based uh, with another colleague of mine, Will. Um, we uh, were founded uh, pretty much by uh, the three of us that, that worked together at a company called IMS uh, Research that specialised in semiconductor research. Um, and had a you know a, a number of areas that they used to provide business intelligence, uh, syndicate and custom work um, out of the UK and the US um, uh, to, to various companies around the world, and, and they were they were bought out by uh, IHS Market uh, a number of years ago. And on the back of that um, buyout, um, aviation was not a sector that they uh, wanted to proceed with, um, IHS market wanted to proceed with. Um, so myself, Craig and Josh got together um, and decided to form Valor on the basis that um, whilst we had no aviation engineering background as such, we were all uh, pretty passionate about the subject uh, and so decided to uh, to create Valor. Um, and it's something that yeah, it's certainly been a um, a good ride to be on, and lots of learning curves. But we're seven years down the line now, um, and we've we've been very fortunate to, to be able to travel the world and, and meet some uh, great people uh, as part of uh, as working for working for Valor. So today we um, focus on um, providing intelligence around in-flight connectivity in-flight entertainment, uh, content, uh, connected cockpit and cabin applications. Uh, and we've also branched out into maritime. So uh, Josh heads up that team looking at maritime connectivity um, and, and a number of different reports that we're branching out to this year on that subject. So uh, we're very much focused on the applications as opposed to um, uh, the satellite element of that, um, but uh, in-flight connectivity is definitely one of our flagship areas, uh, and we built quite a, uh, well, I think quite a nice reputation in, in that area. It is, and, you know, uh, Valor is a very unique consultancy. Um, you know, one of, one of my favorite things to do uh, every few months is you all update what's called your uh, in-flight connectivity and also your Wire, wireless in-flight entertainment tracker, uh, which sort of tracks the uh, number of aircraft that are equipped with in-flight connectivity in different regions of the world. Um, and I wanted to start off the conversation with that because uh, this is a really good time to catch up with you on this topic as it's early in 2020. 
Um, and you know, we're, we're always looking for insights and trends within in-flight connectivity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how that tracker works? How does Valor get such pertinent information about how many aircraft are featuring in-flight connectivity across various regions? How does that system work for you all? I think one of the, the key elements of, um, of our business is that we're completely independent. Uh, and by that, like we have no investors, uh, we have no bias towards any particular technology, um, no particular company. Um, and so really, um, that's that's been something that's that's helped us along the way in, in building uh, some quite important relationships. Um, and and I'll come back to that in a moment, because that's one of the key elements of, of the tracker. Um, so we, we have like a that big syndicated uh, report business um, where we produce, you know, 250 page reports um, once a year uh, on the likes of in-flight connectivity and in-flight entertainment. Um, now to do that, we, uh, sorry, we, we forecast, um, well, we provide both a base year uh, of where the market is today with market shares. And then our goal is to forecast 10 years um, and tell those that are reading the reports like where the market's heading. Um, and that's where the trackers come in, because um, for us to be able to do that without, obviously, I mean, nobody knows what the future holds, um, but to try and do as good a job as possible, um, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously critical to know all of the elements. And one of those elements is airline intent um, and, um, and current activity. Um, so the trackers are something that's really helped us to understand both of those both of those elements. Um, and once a quarter, uh, we introduced this service um, right back at the uh, at the beginning of Valor Consultancy, and it's something that had worked well in our in our previous company. Um, and it's taken a long time to to build up, you know, what what we now consider to be a very accurate picture. Um, and that involves obviously building uh, relationships with the airlines um, that share information with us. Um, and, you know, we're very privileged to have those relationships. Uh, over the course of the tracker, airlines have, have come in and out of reporting information uh, to us. And that information is, is pretty much, you know, how many aircraft are connected with IFC uh, and, you know, and where publicly available, um, what aircraft will be equipped with what technology uh, going forward. Um, and then that element is supplemented by a lot of hard work that's currently done by, uh, as I said, my colleague William Calvert uh, and Craig Foster from the Wireless In-Flight Entertainment side, because uh, we have a tracker there as well, um, sifting through photos, um, uh, press releases and secondary sources uh, to pretty much validate everything else that we're hearing. Uh, and the final element of that as well is looking at quarterly uh, updates from uh, from the service providers such as GoGo, Viasat and, and others that, again, are, are publicly available. Um, and as well as the airlines, we've also got good relationships with the IFC uh, service providers. So, um, again, whilst nothing um, is, is shared that's not publicly available, um, it's good to be able to validate uh, information where we perhaps have extra questions um, or clarifications. And, and that's an iterative process. But, yeah, we're, we're pretty happy with our sources. Um, and, and going forward, uh, it's something that we keep uh, asking our uh, subscribers 
uh, how how do we improve this service? And, and it, you know, both trackers, uh, wireless IFE and in-flight connectivity, uh, have come a long way. Um, so we're hoping to add additional information in the in the coming uh, year, which is looking at modems and the hardware that are going on the aircraft, as well as just the uh, the in-flight connectivity service. And to our wireless IFE tracker, we're also looking at adding all IFE technology, so seat back, overhead. Um, we're looking at adding those elements in to make that tracker more valuable and contribute more to the the annual study. And that, yeah, that you know, it's interesting you mentioned that uh, wireless IFE. You you all sort of differentiate connectivity from wireless IFE, which which is is interesting within itself. I mean, you know, the even the carriers that do feature connectivity, um, the wireless IFE and the ability to sort of have content on board that is streamed directly to a passenger's device is sort of a, a trend that took hold in the last decade and obviously will expand greatly in advance in this decade. Um, can you talk about that a little bit as well? Um, do you find, you know, some, you know, big differences between the number of airlines that just have wireless IFE versus IFC? Yeah, so there's obviously um, uh, you know a great deal, uh, a great deal of overlap. Um, it's it's pretty much um, that those that do have in-flight connectivity uh, and wireless IFE tend to go hand in hand. But there are also a number of airlines, um, and I unfortunately don't have the wireless IFE numbers uh, in front of me. But the, there are a number of air, airlines that do have wireless IFE without having in-flight connectivity, and and for them. As far as we're concerned, it's, it's a very good first step uh, towards in-flight connectivity for those that perhaps aren't on, uh, are, you know, are still on the fence when it comes to the uh, the business model of in-flight connectivity. Uh, wireless IFE is a, is a very good first step uh, because most of the the infrastructure that goes on the aircraft in terms of the WAPs and, and other bits of hardware, um, they're already um, brought into the aircraft to support that wireless IFE infrastructure and service. And so, you know, that can then be leveraged for in-flight connectivity further down the line. And, and we have seen a number of airlines, low-cost carriers uh, around the world that have chosen to go with wireless IFE as a first step. Um, and, a, and a view to in-flight connectivity in the longer term. Uh, but mostly, uh, as you rightly point out, um, we do see very much that connectivity or in-flight connectivity and, um, and wireless IFE certainly go hand in hand. Uh, and that's where both of those trackers, again, complement one another. Um, the work that we do in both tends to supplement quite nicely. And looking at the different regions of the world, um, Valor's information reports by service providers and airlines themselves, uh, the most recent tracker report you put out, uh, North American, North America to probably to nobody in our audience's surprise has the highest volume of active commercial airliners. Um, in today, and actually it says 80% of North America's commercial active fleet is equipped with active in-flight connectivity service. And seven of the North American airlines actually feature the top 10 connected global fleets uh, worldwide, uh, which is kind of an interesting stat. But w one of the things that I found really interesting was that in Europe, it's still relatively low. According to your tracker, just 25% of active commercial aircraft in Europe right now feature connectivity. Why do you think the percentage in Europe is still relatively low right now? 
Well, I think it's always uh, someone actually pointed this out to me uh, in in a conversation, um, and I think um, what's important to note before we get into this is that I think a lot of the carriers that you would expect to have in flight connectivity have now adopted um, in flight connectivity, or at least are installing it. And that goes for a lot of the flag carriers around the world and certainly in Europe as well. Uh, and over the coming years, we expect uh, Western Europe to, uh, and well, we split Europe into Western Europe and then Central and Eastern. Uh, and certainly in Western Europe, the trend is moving towards, you know, half uh, of those airlines in that part of the world having um having in-flight connectivity uh, over, within the next five years. Um, and so I think it's important to stress that, you know, there is that positive side. But if, if we look at, you know, why it's so low today, so around 25% of aircraft in Western Europe uh, have in-flight connectivity based on our tracker, um, I think there's a number of reasons. And firstly, uh, first and foremost, this part of the world, I mean, anywhere outside North America hasn't had that launch pad um, that, that, you know, GoGo's air-to-ground network brought to, to the airlines in North America, um, which obviously brought a number of different benefits in terms of the cost and installation time uh, into the picture and encouraged a lot of airlines to in that part of the world to, to adopt in-flight connectivity. We just haven't seen that in Western Europe. That, that air-to-ground infrastructure obviously has been there. And so linked to that, we then come to the, the next point, which is that, a lot of carriers um, uh, don't yet see um, the, the business model uh, that, that's associated or the successful business model that's associated um, with satellite connectivity. Um, and uh, I, I guess, obviously, the, the only, out, the only uh, alternative there is that you know, a lot of carriers might look to, to supplement that for a long period of time. Uh, to to write off the cost, and that's where wealth comes into it, and and that's where you know the airlines in the Middle East, uh, where we see at the moment around half of the carriers, uh, half the aircraft in the Middle East uh, are currently equipped with in-flight connectivity, but that's set to become a saturated market market like North America uh, in the not too distant future as well. That's where they've had the benefit of being able to you know cover that that expense, whereas in Western Europe we don't see that that wealth or that infrastructure. And so, you know, that's something that, that we've seen, um, I wouldn't say holding back the market, but certainly dampening uh, the willingness to, to, to adopt uh, connectivity. And, and the final part of that as well, then, is when we look at the business model, that's obviously incredibly important, not just to flag carriers, but to low-cost carriers. Uh, and we see a higher density uh, of these lower-cost carriers uh, contributing to the addressable market uh, in Western Europe. So I've got here that, you know, Ryanair, EasyJet, Wizz Air, if you look at the number of aircraft that those carriers alone uh, contribute to the Western Europe, to the European install base, it's around one in five aircraft um, are, are operated or flown by, by those carriers based on, on what we see in the active fleet today. Um, and those carriers certainly aren't going to jump onto in-flight connectivity um, until the business model is, in, uh, is, is demonstrated. And I guess like one of the, the key, uh, the interesting points right now is that Inmarsat are bringing their European aviation network in, into the frame. And that's something that uh, the IAG group are, are currently installing and, and flying. 
And if the business model proves to be a successful one there, and if that service proves to be uh, to, to be successful, then that's certainly something I'm sure the the low cost carriers will will, will look toward. Uh, and then obviously, as more capacity uh, goes up as well um, uh, in the coming years, that will certainly again be something that that should drive uh, or increase. Uh, the attractiveness of, of in-flight connectivity going forward. So we do anticipate that Western Europe will catch up, but certainly it's off to a slower start than what we've seen in North America. Yeah, and you know another interesting thing you brought up there, uh, and I think the same thing is true in, here in, in North America, is that um, you know a couple of the low-cost carriers that I've interviewed, um, they don't see the value of investing on in-flight connectivity if you're just flying domestic routes of say you know two to three hours at max are your flight times um you know i i interviewed for example the chief commercial officer of tap portugal about two to three years ago and he said you know we we are looking to feature in-flight connectivity on our international flights but domestically in europe we just don't see a business case if you know we're only flying a, a couple of hours on the flight and not that many people are going to use the internet, you know, paying to operate it on the aircraft just doesn't meet the business case for us. Is that what you've kind of seen in, in your tracker as well, is that the sort of domestic airliners don't have, you know, you're not seeing as much connectivity on the domestic airliners, but those flying, you know, between uh, the U.S. and Europe, for example, those are the ones where European carriers are, are equipping with in-flight connectivity or already have in-flight connectivity on board. Yeah, um, it's it's a, it's actually quite a big discussion point, and, and I guess there's different uh, ways to look at this. So certainly on on the long haul aircraft, it, the the prospect of in flight connectivity is certainly more attractive because as time goes on, and having flown between Perth and London, I, I, I tell you that the in flight entertainment soon you know soon loses its uh, its its appeal. Right. Uh, <laughs> you start looking for alternative things to do in the cabin, even even talking to the the person next to you starts to starts to look attractive after uh, sixteen hours in the air, but. Um, I think, you know, as, as you look at those long haul carriers, there's there's lots of entertainment on board the aircraft, but there's definitely a willingness to uh, or a need to connect to in-flight, you know, uh, in-flight Wi-Fi at some stage. Um, and so, it, it you know, the, the natural instinct is to say it's more appealing. It, but I would also argue that um, even on those aircraft, Whenever there's a paid model in play, i.e., when you are charged or paying for the privilege to access that Wi-Fi service, we still haven't seen take rates drift up from that, you know, five to ten percent mark, which it's it's been stagnant at since I started looking at this market. Um, so I think if we take the paid model, you can look across um, short haul and long haul and and justify the fact that. That business model or that you know that that need for in-flight connectivity uh, just hasn't taken off um, because of the fact that people can justify their time much better than having to pull out a credit card or, or pay for a service that not only you have to pay for but then historically has been pretty slow and low performing and, and drop out uh, and susceptible to dropouts when you when you have actually you know paid a lot of money uh, for for that privilege so I, I think that's one thing to factor in on, on the second part even on the short haul what we see on the short haul aircraft is that there's there's often not 
the seat back IFE systems that you tend to find on the wide bodies that, that come line fit with, with seat back IFE. Um, and so their airlines are looking for alternatives that are, that are more cost effective than installing the, the expensive IFE uh, hardware. And so connectivity plays a very important role uh, in, in that side. So on, on the, the narrow body aircraft, we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, carriers install wireless IFE and in-flight connectivity as a way to keep passengers entertained and to differentiate. Um, so I, I do accept the, the fact that flight time is an element of that. That there are some carriers, there are some carriers and, and some uh, vendors out there <clears throat> that are looking to exploit the passengers that are travelling only a couple of hours, um, because arguably those are the ones that are sat there not watching IFE, <clears throat> and so there is an opportunity there to uh, to position uh, in-flight connectivity um, potentially for a free model, and that's certainly where we see uh, the market going. Is a lot of this uh, ancillary revenue that has been promised will be generated from those that uh, get eyeballs on the screen uh, onto their portal and look to bring through uh, advertising um, and, and product positioning uh, as part of that um, a part of that approach. So. Uh, when we see a free model in play, <clears throat> the likes of Qantas and JetBlue, you know, we've seen take rates upwards of 35 to 40%. And it's there that, you know, we can start looking at making money um, from in-flight connectivity because you've got a lot of eyeballs on the screen and a lot of people that are willing to, uh, you know, to, well, uh, are able to therefore be exposed to ads and, and other things uh, whilst in the flight. Yeah, and that's exactly why we wanted to catch up with you. Exactly, you know, that type of uh, insight is very interesting to learn about. Uh, so we talked a little bit about Europe. Um, now, in, in 2019, Valor also published a very in-depth 250-page report on the status of in-flight connectivity and equipage in India, China, and Russia. Um, can you give us a little bit of a sense of what the status of in-flight connectivity looks like in those regions? Are they still also sort of catching up to the number of connected aircraft flying in North America right now? Um, yeah, so the report that we published, yeah, was was uh, in around May uh, last year, well, in 2019. Um, and I think the best way to summarize, like, what we found, it was an incredible report. And you know, I, I got to get, I got to travel to China uh, a few times, and I was able to uh, to meet with a number of the uh, the players that are influencing IFC across, uh, particularly India and China. Uh, but we also managed to speak to likes of Stecom and Altegro Sky that are becoming key players or trying to position themselves as key players in in Russia. Um, and there, there are three. There are three markets that, uh, you know, um, there's a lot of energy around them. There's a lot of opportunity uh, that, that has been spoken about in, in all three. And, and our initial intention was to only really look at China and India, because uh, in our global IFC report, they were two markets that had been, you know, put forward as the, the future of IFC, uh, where all the opportunity was and all the buzz, uh, given the number of, uh, aircraft that that sat within that addressable market for you know for various reasons we'll go into uh, and Russia was then put forward as another market not because of the necessarily the opportunity but the intrigue um, and the unknowns around Russia um, because of its various regulations and and just very inward nature and what we found was that actually you know all three markets are, are really very sovereign uh, they all have their own um, 
regulation in place that's designed to protect uh, local firms and, and local interest. Um, but really, what we ended up finding is that there were t- the three markets are split up. There are two markets with a great deal of potential. Uh, in China and India uh, because of unconnected fleets uh, and actually a lot of government initiatives that are encouraging in-flight connectivity adoption. Uh, whereas in Russia, um, what we found was that whilst there's a lot of intrigue, um, we certainly find it hard to see where the value is for service providers. Um, and I'd like to start with just going through that, if that's okay, um, sure. and, and just giving a few of the, the key findings. So what we found is that uh, when we talk about like which airlines are uh, you know, the most um, active in terms of in-flight activity and have the largest fleets, Aeroflot uh, and the Aeroflot group, uh, so particularly with Rosia, um, are dominating uh, the, the today and the future of in-flight connectivity. Um, so at the moment, they have you know, 40 aircraft active, which represent, well, 50 aircraft active, uh, which represents 100% of that installed base out of Russia. Um, and that includes, obviously, the Russia, uh, the Russia uh, long-haul aircraft. Uh, but they've got 100 at least in backlog um, with some new aircraft, the MC-21s, that they've, they've already indicated will be line fit um, within flight connectivity. Now, beyond the Aeroflot group, it's actually really hard to see where the opportunity comes from. There are, there are a few airlines, a handful of airlines that, that have the right fleet makeup. Uh, and have the interest in in-flight connectivity uh, to be, you know, to be considered as potential opportunities. Um, but overall, we see uh, a number of small fleets. Uh, we see an uh, uh, affordability when it comes to the budgets that airlines have, but also that passengers have to be able to afford in-flight connectivity. And um, that really stems from uh, a, considerably, uh, a considerable lingering effect of an economic downturn that hit just a few years ago in Russia um, and, you know, continued tensions when it comes to political um, relationships that are really uh, dampening the affordability um, of those uh, those people that fly regularly uh, or able to fly regularly and then to justify spending $20 on, on in-flight connectivity. So I completely see from an airline point of view, you're looking at this in, in Russia thinking, well, you know, what's, what's the point in, in, in equipping and spending this money on, on in-flight connectivity? Um, and they're finding it hard to justify the business model. So the, the, the summary that we brought around from Russia is certainly that Aeroflot um, are certainly going to be the uh, the focal point uh, for a lot of providers, um, and uh, really uh, beyond that, then it's the, the likes of S7, Ural, Pavida that that represent the next wave. But again, only on a few incremental aircraft is our opinion. Um, so. Um, Behind that, then, we have China and India, um, again, where a lot of the opportunity is. Uh, and I'll, I guess we'll come on to China uh, separately. But what I did want to say about India is that there's a few talking points that, that you know, that need to be addressed. Um, the first one, uh, and I have to acknowledge here that SpiceJet is, 
um, is already uh, installing um, Air, uh, GX uh, with with through Collins Aerospace, but Imarsat uh, GX service uh, on its 737 Max, which uh, obviously are, are ground at the moment, uh, but they're in the process of, uh, process of equipping that. And I also know that that Imarsat um, are working very hard to to get their gateway uh, in that part of the world live, which is an incredible difficult task uh, given the, the again the sovereign regulation that exists in India, whereby you, you know you have to have that gateway in India working with local partners um, that would represent some level of success uh, certainly for, for Inmarsat to be able to do that um, and they are installing in-flight connectivity but um, the, the key thing really to address is you know price sensitivity uh, the US dollar certainly doesn't translate into the rupee very well and it's very unlikely um, as a result that many passengers, apart from those that, that you know, the, the elite, um, will certainly be able to justify spending the amount of money it costs today uh, for a Wi-Fi session. Uh, and also in the airline industry, it's going through somewhat of a revolution right now. Um, it's pretty much on its knees thanks to uh, what we consider to be a race to the bottom for ticket prices, uh, which has taken, you know, Kingfisher and most recently Jet Airways um, out of the out of the industry, um, or at least you know the latter uh, is is certainly very much on its way out, um, and that's obviously had a massive impact on what the aviation market looks like today. Um, and finally, the expectation of data of, of, of how cheap data is uh, from a passenger perspective um, has been rocked by the entrance of Reliance Geo uh, into the telco scene. You know, bursting bursting onto into that market, aggressively claiming market share, and in the process, offering data a silly amount of money, um, which has led you know, to, to people, you know, just having data to burn through. And so the expectation is that that experience will be replicated on the ground and then to be presented with uh, the, the need to pay for, for the privilege could be quite a shock. Um, so really the only only option is for a free service uh, to, to succeed. And SpiceJet have, a, have every intention to do that. Um, but in order to make that service profitable, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to require a lot of work to make sure that the elements around that service um, are profitable, such as you know bringing advertising onto on board uh, and other elements to really make that service a success. So that'll be a really interesting market to watch because if that's a success, then we see Indigo, which is like the largest airline, uh, at least from a low-cost carrier, but certainly it will become the largest airline in, in India, and it is profitable, one of the few that are. Um, that could be a, you know, a really big opportunity should the business model prove itself. So um, India will be very interesting going forward. And, you know, the, the, so let's keep moving east in regions. And uh, what we di haven't talked about yet is China specifically, uh, which is a very interesting market, um, especially, you know, like we, we talked in our, our um, previous interview with you that uh, there was previous regulation in place that prevented the deployment of in-flight connectivity domestically in China. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Has that regulation changed there? Is in-flight connectivity equipage in China growing? Um, just some, some trends and insights you, you observe from China. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and again, apologies if I, uh, if I you know, go on a little bit when I'm, when I'm talking here. Feel free to interrupt at any time. Uh, no problem. <laughs> and ask side questions. <laughs> Um, but I think um, 
again with with China, so there's a couple of things. It's important first of all to stress that we're talking about mainland China uh, when we talk about regulation, uh, which is something that that we found pretty early on. Um, you know, with the likes of uh, Hong Kong, Macau, Taiwan, um, the regulation itself. Um, uh, doesn't re- doesn't hasn't applied traditionally, which is where we've seen, you know, the likes of Cafe Pacific, uh, China Airlines, um, really take um, take advantage of that and, and and move a lot earlier than what we've seen, uh, you know, in, out of the mainland. Uh, the second thing to note as well is that. Um, the regulation that we're that we're talking about has actually been in place in India as well. So as well as mainland China, um, India uh, also had regulation in place that strictly prohibited the use of mobile phones, um, even in flight mode, uh, but over their respective airspace. Um, and that began in, you know, at least in China back in 1999, uh, linked to uh, concerns around low quality handsets and how they might interfere with uh, aircraft systems, which a lot of airlines uh, we know, uh, you know, took into consideration. But the uh, added into that, the concerns politically as well um, from from both company uh, from both countries um, is something that were in was in that mix and has led to the fact that it took a lot longer um, to convince uh, those those uh, those regulators that this wasn't something uh, that was uh, was to be too much of a concern and, and could be dealt with um, uh, appropriately. Um, and what we found with that regulation isn't that it's it, it's been lifted as such, but it's certainly been eased. The wording around it has been eased by the respective CAAC in China and the TRAI in, in India. Um, and to date, what that's done, because we're talking about um, use of mobile phones in uh, on those carriers over Chinese airspaces uh, and Indian airspace, is that we've seen domestic IFC. Uh, at the very least, um, impacted. And so we have uh, an entire domestic fleet, narrow bodies and wide bodies that aren't equipped um, and, and are, you know, are ripe for the taking um, for, for service providers, you know, thousands of aircraft uh, that sit without in-flight connectivity to date. Um, and now, uh, well, in 2018, that, that regulation was lifted uh, or, or eased um, and opened the door um, for service providers to at least start, you know, considering pitching their services. And and I, for one, personally felt that that would happen, you know, pretty quickly. I think I I overestimated um, <laughs> the the ease. Sorry, underestimated the the you know the the appeal and the ease at which um, this process would happen. Um, I think a lot of vendors have been waiting, you know, uh, patiently and spent a lot of money positioning their services for when the green light was given by both regulators. And that, that simply hasn't happened yet. Um, we do see, you know, that, that there are three, for example, in, in China, there's 160 aircraft on the mainland that today have in-flight connectivity, sorry, that as of Q1 have had um, in-flight connectivity. That's increased to 187 aircraft uh, in our Q3 data. Um, so you'll see that in the course. And of- now that was over. That was over t- 2019. That that improvement happened. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's only 20 aircraft, um, most of which are line fit offerable. So A350 787s that are coming off the line okay. um, within flight connectivity. So that that increase of 20 aircraft has has happened. Um, 
you know, since um, over the course of this year. So there's been very little movement, um, in, at least in mainland China. And in India, we're still, at, well, obviously at naught. Um, the install base is at zero because SpiceJet, um, for those aircraft that do have active uh, equipment under those radomes, um, they're, they're not flying yet for, for the 737 MAX issues. So um, we've seen very little movement. Um, and... I guess there's a there's a there's a few reasons behind that, but but first and foremost, at least in China, it's it's really the competitive environment rather than rather than government intervention that's now holding back the market. Um, at the capacity level, um, you obviously need to be a Chinese operator uh, to be able to service uh, China. You need to have gateways in the country. Um, or at least you need to be partnered with a Chinese operator to be able to provide services in there uh, for, for IFC purposes and mobility at, at the very least. Um, and to date, there are three uh, operators that are licensed. Uh, AsiaSat, AppStar, um, who are relatively new, they're based out of Hong Kong, but um, AVSatcom Mobile are, um, are, are, a, are, a, are a satellite operator uh, that should become more prominent as, as time goes on, certainly this year. And then finally, ChinaSat. Um, and both uh, and all three of those uh, operators uh, provide services KU, um, and then the latter provides KA um, through one through one satellite, ChinaSat 16 at the moment. Um, now the capacity side um, has has definitely been a, a factor, um, and ChinaSat 18 there was a that was there was a lot of uh, hope pinned on that satellite on the basis that. It would supplement ChinaSat 16, which covers the eastern coast with around 15 uh, megabits per second worth of um, uh, of capacity. Uh, sorry, 15 gigabits uh, worth of capacity. Um, so it's a relatively small uh, satellite, but certainly would would, would service that eastern coast um, initially. Um, and ChinaSat 18, unfortunately, had uh, issues during the launch phase, um, and so that satellite has now been. Uh, rendered, um, you know, it's been written off uh, for 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 a right sense of the word. So it's uh, it's something now that that would obviously cause a lot of uh, disruption to the market um, because airlines now have a choice, at least those that were going to go KA band, of being able to you know cover off the eastern coast, uh, eastern border, which is very populated, very busy still, uh, but then not have capacity uh, out in the western. Uh, side of, of China, uh, or you can wait for uh, AppStar 6D, which APSATCOM are due to launch uh, in the coming months, which is an HCS satellite um, that will provide KU band coverage and supplement the networks of, of Panasonic uh, and GoGo. But again, there's a lot of choices, a lot of options there on that capacity front, which you know, which have held you know airlines back that are looking to figure out you know which solution best suits their their needs their their route network uh, and so that's one thing and then the second the level below that we see service providers um emerging and again the regulation states that you need to be a, a local um company with with local infrastructure on the ground that can land data um and that's where the telcos come into play um to the likes of China Mobile um, and and others. Um, so and, and just a point about that, you know, when when you do say you, you have to be domestic, you know, how how do they apply that to uh, just a satellite service provider like, uh, you know, an Inmarsat or a Viasat? How how do they kind of go about trying to provide service, considering that is a regulation they have to deal with? 
Uh, sorry, can you repeat the question? So, you know, you, you mentioned you, you have to have a, a sort of a domestic hold there uh, to provide in-flight yes. connectivity in China. But if you're, you know, if you're a satellite player and you, you're not really, you know, fixated on uh, regions, so to speak, how do you go about providing service there? I mean, you have to form a, a, you know, if you're based in another part of the world, do you have to form a partnership with, with a company in China? Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of, um, thank you for repeating. So there's a couple of elements of, of that. So there's, there's two parts of the regulation. Uh, there's a couple of licenses that you can, that, that you can obtain. Um, so, you know, there's lights of A13-1, uh, A13-2 um, that talk about the provision of MSS and FSS services. Um, and then there's obviously there's then other licenses which relate to renting uh, those services and how those are sold into China, and, oh, okay. and to be you know to, to summarise those and they're stated um, a lot of the operators will will have will will have access to those as part of the the government um, regulation, but it's. Um, it's really having a local teleport uh, and local control center uh, within within China. So it has to they have to have a gateway in mainland China and be willing to you know to to land data in in mainland China. And that can be uh, well. That's obviously a very difficult process. Like the the Chinese have, have uh, you know have really reserved that privilege for for local operators. Um, Obviously, Imarsat have an L-band gateway um, in in China, uh, which supports their their legacy L-band services and, and uh, as Swift broadband safety services. Um, but it's it's something that when you extend that to KA and KU band uh, services for the provision of, of broadband and internet, um, the, chi- the 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 Chinese regulators want those companies to you know to to prosper that are, that are local only, and so there's it's, it, there's a lot of regulation and uh, bias to to navigate, which I think has been very difficult for uh, for operators to get and. Uh, Please, I, I would say that there are other operators like SES and, and Intelsat that, that do provide um, services, various services, um, and have provided services across these regions um, and continue to do so. But again, those what we're finding is that that's becoming harder and harder as the regulations tightening in these markets, and it will be very hard for international players to, to service uh, into mainland China. See, that is very interesting to learn. Uh, yeah, like, you know, like we were saying before, China's a very interesting market. Uh, okay, and, uh, you know, just getting out to the, the rest of the Asia Pacific, um, how, how does that fleet equipage look? We, we talked about that as well in our, our previous uh, sort of off-air interview. Um, how, how does the rest of, you know, is the rest of the Asia Pacific carriers, are they still kind of catching up again to to the North American market in, in terms of equipage. Yeah, and and just sorry, just say quickly for what for what it's worth, and um, when we when we just finished about China, the uh, I know that I've talked a lot about the competitive environment, but a key element as well has been at the service provider level. Um, we've seen that there's there's a lot of regulation that's that's stopping the likes of um, GoGo, uh, Panasonic, well, sorry, uh, Viasat, Imarsat, and others. Um, really make progress in those markets. So uh, Panasonic and GoGo have, have certainly um, managed to build up relationships that allow them to service uh, aircraft in China. 
but linked to what you said earlier, at that level, the service provider level as well, and hardware, for likes of Astronics and Honeywell and these big players that want to play as well, they have to all be partnered with those local telcos. So everything stems, the problem that we see today stems from the capacity and the need to have a local partner, even at the, the data landing side. So that will be you know, something that we'll continue to, to watch. Um, now, when it comes to the rest of um, rest of Asia, we've actually seen quite some, uh, you know, some nice progress uh, in in that part of the world. So, as far as we see at the moment, there's 20% of aircraft um, as of Q3 2019 in the Asia Pacific region that have uh, in-flight connectivity, and the backlog uh, that's currently in place would would bring that up to around 35%. Um, over the next like three to four years, uh, Cathay Pacific, Qantas, Air New Zealand, um, there's there's a number of airlines that are currently actively installing uh, in-flight connectivity through the likes of GoGo's 2KU, uh, Inmarsat GX, which is improving extremely popular uh, in this part of the world. Um, and obviously, Viasat 3, uh, which is due to arrive in, uh, in, in, a, in a couple of years, uh, it'll be the third and final satellite from Viasat. That's also you know, highly anticipated from a number of airlines uh, around this part of the world. So assuming those airlines can wait for the satellite to arrive, that will obviously then drive up connectivity. Um, but in this part of the world, there's also a, a very high number of low-cost carriers, like the Lion Group, for example, are just one that come to mind that will obviously take a lot of convincing. Uh, AirAsia has already jumped on uh, within Marsat, um, and that could well be a business case for others to follow. Um, but the service advisors have got their work cut out in trying to convince a number of these low-cost carriers where you look at the margins that they're working to, and they're, in, they're, they're, they're incredibly thin. Uh, more so than than many other parts of the world, so uh, there's a lot of pro there's a lot of progress still to be made in in this area. And there you have it. I think Daniel just probably gave me uh, at least five to six different articles. I'm going to look to follow up. I've been taking notes this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Very good information to learn about. Um, he is a senior consultant with Valor Consultancy. Uh, we went sort of around the globe in terms of in-flight connectivity. Uh, Daniel, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast. Just a reminder again that you can see all of the information about our annual Global Connected Aircraft Summit at www.gcasummit.com. My name is Woodrow Bellamy III, and thanks again for tuning in to the Global Connected Aircraft Podcast.